Grace and peace to you from our Lord Jesus Christ. I'll be preaching today from the Old Testament reading, Genesis chapter 2, 7 to 17. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we hear your word to us today, send us your Holy Spirit and increase our faith. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. On more than one occasion when I have been out visiting in this congregation, visiting at some of your homes, you have proudly showed me your gardens. I enjoy it. You can learn a bit about a person from having a look and talking about their garden. I'll let you be the judge what that means about me, that my garden is somewhat neglected and weed infested. It's interesting Just about everywhere you go in the world, you find gardens. Even in the suburbs where we have easy access to food and flowers, it's still, we have our own gardens. Even in the city here, where people live in these high-rise apartments, the trend is towards rooftop gardens, having greenery around. Cities plant botanical gardens and parks. What is it about human beings and gardens? Well, we learn from the scriptures that the connection goes back as far as you can go. The Lord God planted a garden in Eden, in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. So today, let's consider the significance of man in the garden of God. We'll look at three main things under this heading. First, the wonder in the garden. Second, the work in the garden. And finally, the worship in the garden. Wonder, work, and worship. First is the wonder in the garden. One of the things about God putting man in a garden is that gardens in general, and this garden in particular, are not just functional places. Not just practical places. They're more than that. They're places of wonder. They're places of beauty. Did you hear this detail in the text? Out of the ground, the Lord God made to grow every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. Pleasant to the sight. There's the wonder in the garden. There's the beauty into which God has placed human beings. Just think about this. Presumably, those trees could have provided food and wood and shelter just as well, without also being beautiful. But that's not what God designed. He did not put man into a purely functional, utilitarian environment. He put him somewhere beautiful. Human beings, in other words, have been designed to flourish within the context of God-given beauty. Beauty is real. It's from God. It's part of his good creation. This is worth us thinking deeply about. Think about the way that beauty in God's creation still affects us, even after the fall, which brings a curse onto this creation. Haven't you looked out at a marvelous sunset, or climbed up to an awe-inspiring view of the mountains, or sat and watched the majestic waves roll in in the ocean, and hasn't your soul just been drawn 
towards the God who created this beautiful world. Beauty is something which resonates deeply in the human soul. And as we in the church go about our work in the world, we do well to remember that people can be drawn to God not only by what is good and true, but also by what is beautiful. This is why there's an important place in Christianity for the visual arts. We have a number of people here in this congregation who are painters or artists of other kinds, and we need to remember that these are not separate from our Christian faith, that your God-given artistic gifts can reflect the original design for humanity in God's beautiful garden. There are many stories of people who are perhaps unpersuaded by logical arguments for the existence of God, who even scoff at the Bible's vision for what the good life is, but who nevertheless see beauty in the world and are led to wonder, maybe there is something more. We can remind people that from the Bible's perspective, the reason we are affected by that wonder and beauty is because God is the source of it. He's the origin of all that is beautiful. He put man in a garden which had trees that were pleasant to the sight. There's the wonder in the garden. Next, there's the work in the garden. Another significant thing about God putting the man Adam in a garden rather than, say, roaming free as a nomad is that a garden needs to be worked. We hear this emphasis in verse 15 of the text. Then the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to till it and keep it. In another translation, simply to work it. Now remember, this is the original vision in the Bible for human beings. This is before the fall into sin, before the curse, before the spiral into evil and suffering. And in God's good creation, in the way he designed human beings to flourish, it includes productive work. As I said, God could have created man to roam free, or he could have placed him in something more resembling an ancient holiday resort, whatever that would have looked like where you just put your feet up, take it easy, and you have servants to take care of your every whim. And that is most people's picture of paradise, isn't it? And in fact, there are other religious traditions and mythologies which get something closer to that picture as paradise. But the biblical vision is different. The picture here is that man is putting God's garden, God's paradise, to work it. This is, in fact, a part of being in the very image of God because the chapter began by speaking of the God who finished his work of creation. Again, a very significant theme for us to consider because for many people in our world, work is not necessarily part of the picture of a good life, is it? It's more of a necessary evil or something like that. And even as Christians, we don't always know how our work out there in the world, I'm not just talking about paid work, by the way, paid or otherwise, outside or inside the home, either way, we're we're not always sure how that work connects to our Christian faith. 
Our culture tries to teach us that we work only for the weekends, that the goal is a comfortable retirement of not working anymore to get to a point in life where everybody else does the work for us, perhaps. And granted, the fall into sin does have devastating consequences on our ability to enjoy work. But in Christ, everything is redeemed. Everything is redeemed, including our work. You are designed as a human being to flourish in the context of beauty, and you are designed to flourish in the context of productive work. We still have glimpses of this, don't we, even in our fallen world? You know, that feeling of collapsing into bed after a hard day's work. You're tired, but it's a strangely good feeling. Or that moment on holidays, perhaps, when the novelty begins to wear off. Or that struggle that so many of us know well of not being able to find productive work to do. Sometimes Christians fall into the trap of thinking that our work is one thing over here, our spiritual life is a very different thing over there. But in the Bible, they are more integrated. Your work is a part of your Christian life. It's part of God's design for you. The book of Ecclesiastes says, there is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his work. This also I saw is from the hand of God. The Apostle Paul encourages the early Christian community, aspire to live quietly, to mind your own affairs, and to work with your hands, as we instructed you. And there are many implications of this that we could go into, or just one to consider for today. This can even change the way that we think about something like retirement. Many of you know dear Dr. Renner. Pastor Renner was until recently, I believe, the oldest active pastor in the Lutheran Church of Australia, still preaching at about 95 or so, I think. Now, I heard Dr. Renner say somewhat provocatively on more than one occasion, brothers, he's speaking to pastors, brothers, the word retirement is not in the New Testament. Now, I don't think that the point is that it's wrong to retire per se. There is a whole other problem where we idolize our work and become workaholics, and we need to remember that rest, too, is established in creation by God. The point is more that the goal of life for Christians is not to get to a stage where we can do as little as possible and have other people just work for us. The goal may be something more like getting to a point where we're no longer reliant on our paid work for our daily bread so that we can reorient our work, as many of you do. Reorient that work to your family, to your church, to your community, This is good. Productive work is not separate from your life of Christian faith. Productive work is good and God-pleasing. Man was put in the garden of God to work. So there's the wonder of the garden. There's the work in the garden. And finally, there is worship in the garden. Now, why do I say worship? 
Well, there is a long tradition of interpretation, including by Luther himself, which picks up on various details in this text and points out that the garden also seems to be a sanctuary of sorts, a place of worship. I don't really have time to go into all of it today, but the rivers, the precious stones, the language even of what the man is called to do, it all points, if you trace it through the rest of the Old Testament, it all points to this garden as a garden sanctuary, a place of worship. And what I'd like to focus on more than that is in verse 16 and 17. The Lord God commanded the man, you may freely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall die. Martin Luther said, this was the first worship service. What he meant was that very simply, what you have here is that God speaks, Adam listens. God gives, Adam responds in thanks and praise. God promises, Adam is to trust. God commands, Adam is to obey. Here, in very simplistic form, is worship in the garden. And thinking about this theme can help us understand what this tree of the knowledge of good and evil actually is all about. I take it to be that the command not to eat of that tree is actually about right worship. It's the command for man to take his rightful place under God. It is for man to adopt his position as creature before the Creator. It is to accept that the Lord is the one who defines good and evil, not man. It is to acknowledge that God is God and you are not. Don't we still need to hear this today? During the week, I was reminded of a famous case in the United States Supreme Court, which illustrates our continual desire to take the place of God to eat of the fruit of the tree of good and evil. One of the judges in this case summarised or articulated the prevailing attitude of modern human beings. It's sometimes known as the Casey decision, and here's what the judge said. At the heart of liberty is the right to define one's own concept of existence, of meaning, of the universe and of the mystery of human life. I'll just read that again. At the heart of liberty is the right to define one's own concept of existence, of meaning, of the universe, and of the mystery of human life. It just so happens, this was the case which essentially enshrined the right to abortion in the United States. So we have this right to define the mystery of life, even if it means death. That statement, though, it's a fairly good illustration of what I think it means to reach out and eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But it's not just a problem out there somewhere. It's a problem in here. It's a problem in each of your hearts. We were designed to be in the garden to worship, to flourish in fellowship with God, in the freedom of living within the boundaries God made for us, but tragically, each and every one of us 
is not content to let God be God. Instead, we want to assert our own independence and autonomy. And so we are expelled from the garden, evicted from paradise, cut off from fellowship and worship of God. But thanks be to God, there is another garden in the Bible. There is another sanctuary and there is another tree. As Jesus comes, he says that it is in him that God has come to tabernacle with us. As Jesus comes, he says that it is from his heart that rivers of living water flow. As Jesus comes, he says, destroy this temple and I will build it up in three days. As Jesus comes, a woman anoints him for burial and he says, leave her alone. She's done a beautiful thing for me. As Jesus comes, the one through whom the work of creation was done now brings about the work of redemption. As Jesus comes, he prays in a garden that the cup of suffering would pass from him, but not my will, but yours be done. And when Jesus comes, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. And as he did, he said to the penitent thief, today you will be with me in paradise. Jesus tasted death for you, and he rose again. So that for you now there is only the fruit of the tree of life for all those who are in him by baptism and faith. And today you will taste of that very life as you receive his body and his blood. The Bible begins with a tree of life and it ends with a tree of life. In the book of Revelation, we read, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it and his servants will worship him. So next time you're out in the garden, remember it was the Lord God who made us and put us in a garden in the beginning. There's wonder in the garden, there's work in the garden, and there's worship in the garden. That's how you have been designed, created by God, to flourish. God grant it to us for Jesus' sake. Amen.